Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to your booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host, book inspector, and aspiring book bailiff. In 1997, I lent a copy of Dumb Witness by Agatha Christie to Emily Attenborough, not knowing that Emily and her family would move to Canada that summer. Emily, if you're listening, give it back. I know there are post offices in Canada. Firstly, my brand new book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline on the 7th of March. If you're listening, on our release day... That's coming up. It's the eve of International Women's Day and it will be available online and from bookshops across the UK, including themargatebookshop.com. This week's guest has a brilliant book out this week. We're talking to Philippa Perry, the author, broadcaster, psychotherapist and acne aunt on the eve of the publication of her new book, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. Philippa is a writer of great wit, elegance and economy And this extremely smart self-help book is a life-enhancing font of wisdom, whether you're a parent or have parents. We visited Philippa in North London, where she introduced us to Kevin the Cat, revealed she'd fallen out of love with Jane Austen and baked us a pie. We're in North London. It's a really beautiful day. It's February, but it is surprisingly spring-like. Downstairs in the kitchen, I'm looking out into the garden. I can see a lot of greenery and plants. And, and there's um, a cat here. A cat is weaving furry around us. Who kind of wants his uh, wet food, which I've got up here. A hungry cat who's very jealous of the delici- delicious homemade vegetable pie we're eating. Okay, one more um, bite, one more bite. Wait, wait, wait. I'll tell you what, while you um, uh-huh. have a bite, just to sort of to think about... Um, when you, I'm curious about, um, when you were growing up and reading, were there any characters, characters in books that you really saw yourself in, or really struck a chord with you? Um, now it's my turn to buy. <laughs> I have to come back to Jane Austen, which is probably a bit dull of me, um, because... Well, I think, you know, she wrote very, about very universal themes. She was an observer of life, and I felt like I was an observer of life. And with the arrogance of the adolescent, I probably thought I could see more and interpret more in other people's thoughts and, and sayings and actions than I actually did. And so I saw her as a mate, like, you know, we too can uncover the, we too can uncover the hypocrisies of, of this small, um, inward-looking world that, that we inhabit. 
we will break free, free and find our own soulmates. Uh-huh. So you, know. you saw yourself more as the author yeah. than as someone created in the author's yeah. universe. I mean, at the time I read them, you know, I desperately wanted to be Lizzie Bennett, but it's terrible when self-knowledge does descend. I realise that I am more Lydia Bennett. You know, I like a good time. Oh, really? I like a good time. I'm in... Um, impulsive, you know, make bad choices. Because um, I'm the wild el- for officers, you know. I'm the eldest of six girls. Oh really? Um, My God, you are so, Jane Bennett. Yeah, and that I hated that. I was like, bloody Jane. She's so boring. She's so, so boring. Yeah. But um, I suppose it's interesting because I've always thought that because I've obviously for. Very, I think, <laughs> reasons. If there's a load of sisters in the book, I'm like, yes, which one am I? But I suppose at a time when telling women's stories was often dismissed, and I think it still is a bit, um, it's kind of, it's different facets and aspects of womanhood, mm. isn't it? And having different lenses through which to explore them. Yes, I mean, things like um, the March Sisters and Little Women, oh. it was all kind of like women's concerns of thoughts, feelings, rather than going out into the world and doing stuff. And and women's stories were quite often about duty Mm. (laughs) rather than adventure. And I think they were more nuanced and interesting because they did go inward. And I am introspective. Is there anybody can sound cool and adventurous while they're wrestling a bear? But I think whatever else you think of the March girls, they created a really sort of a detailed world and what I love is what my favourite books um, any books where women have fallen on some sort of hard times and they've got to be resourceful you know whether it's the fossil sisters and ballet shoes going off and like whoa I can make 14 shillings a week if I'm in a panto or mm. Joe selling a hair so few opportunities for women to earn money. I'm researching at the moment a, a documentary for BBC4 about uh, the late Victorians. And there were very limited opportunities for women to make any money. But what, the growth industry for women was becoming a medium because of um, they discovered radio waves about then and the telegraph took off and then the radio took off and people thought, what else is out there in the ether? So spiritualism had a massive surge of interest in it. And it was a great way to make money because if you're a psychic or a medium, what you need more than anything is masses of intuition. And what have women got masses of? Intuition. And so... Um, a lot of them became successful mediums and managed to earn a living that way. You might be horrified by this idea, but I'm thinking about you as a psychotherapist and this idea that it's another, it was an early version of kind of being interested, I suppose, in the the psyche and the mind and listening and observing and interpreting. Absolutely. I mean, Freud, this was the bed in which Freud um, came to blossom, wasn't it? And uh, his forays into the unconscious and that we have this unconscious and that we are ruled by it was certainly of its time there it just happens to be an idea that took hold and has has kept hold Uh, so yes I I definitely come from there I am examining my roots (laughs) (laughs) which I mean if if you could would you have sort of a big spangly maybe you do have a big 
starry shawl and some sort of no, a, an array of props. I, I absolutely wouldn't, um, because although I think there are some things we don't understand uh, about how, say, for instance, bodily to body to body communication happens, how do we pick up on an atmosphere in the room? You know, we don't we don't know everything about that, but we know we do it. I, I don't like to say we do it because of magic. I like to say, you know, we all have our own experiences, but we needn't rush to conclusions about why we have them. I guess there are so many different ways of, you know, intelligence, isn't it, beyond sort of the purely... I suppose it's all kind of cerebral. I wouldn't call it cerebral. I mean, I think, you know, when you are lying down with a baby, say, you, you can't have a cerebral relationship with them, but you can sort of synchronise your breathing, notice the give and take, to and fro of facial expressions or little noises. There's definitely the blueprint of dialogue there, even though we might not have actual words. That sound you can hear is the cat wanting to go out. <laughs> said that I came up with much less lovely example, which is um, possibly the reason I went freelance. When you work in an office and you come back from lunch and there's this real like, something has happened in my lunch hour and oh, someone you... somewhere is very, very angry and I, you just feel it. That's in, you see, that's interesting. And I, don't, I wouldn't say that was cerebral. I would say, you know, maybe the, the very hairs on your skin are picking something mm. up. We, we're not sure how it happens. I suppose, I, I think, I, I, well, I used the wrong word, but perhaps more, you know, in the brain than in the mind. It's some, I was wondering whether it was a part of your brain is processing something that a body is doing, but it's not a verbal communication or a, yeah. one that can perhaps be articulated. Before I forget, because I'm holding this beautiful edition of Persuasion, I love it. It's a Penguin English Library one, and it's... Um, well thumbed, isn't it not? This is a loved book. I mean, it's kind of a shit cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really sort of a lonely grey that house. That is the Cobbett line. Regis. This is definitely the, the Jane Austen I know the least well. Oh, really? Is this your favourite? or is No, this the one I that don't you have favourites of anything. Oh, I uh, don't believe you. I don't, because <laughs> I move about, I change. I'm not made of stone. I'm, I'm a plastic person, so so what have you read suits my mood one more day? More than once? Oh, God, I've read Austen. I'd say I'd read... Each Austin book, including the letters and the other things, I've read them about over 20 times each, I'd say. So do you have an Austin for a particular mood? What is your persuasion mood? Well, I've come to the conclusion, and it's terribly sad, really, that Austin was a terrible snob, and we wouldn't have got on in real life. So I've sort of come full circle with Austin. I had a love affair with her writing, her, her mind her her keen observation but she was such a snob her thing with elegance and her thing with reserve and dignity it's, it's got me down lately and um, actually i think we're through me and her oh wow so um i'm no longer hero worshipping her i mean that is a hell of a i know it's thing, sad isn't, isn't it? it it's almost like we need a divorce how do you, do you, when someone has occupied that space, because, again, you know, as you say, being that, that point of connection and, you know, this idea of her 
as an observer and as the observer that you thought you wanted to be. I do wonder whether... She judges. That's what I don't like about her. She doesn't just observe. She judges and she damns. I mean, her preference for, for people in, in, say, Mansfield Park is Fanny Price. I mean, what a bore Fanny Price is compared to, say, the very spirited Mary Crawford who has improper thinking because she makes dirty jokes. I know who I want to spend the evening with and it isn't Fanny. I am... Sure. The only Fanny Price <laughs> defender I know because I think that she is just paralysed by fear of, of doing the right thing and she so wants to be just, you know, good and she wants everybody to have a nice time and, you know, she's just very, I think, very frightened and never knows where to put herself and that was how I felt when I was a child and how I still do. And I think that, but because there are so many sort of, you know, it's that. Well, you are charming. (laughs) Mary, maybe Fanny would be charming too. You are charming in your way of not falling back on a a ready-made script, but thinking what you are thinking in the moment and, and sharing that and taking that risk. And, you know, you share your vulnerability like that. Fanny bloody mouse you're not like fanny i suppose it's not her fault of course it's not her fault and i'm sure if i met her we'd get on just great perhaps fanny never transforms herself in the way that we'd like to Mm, she's perfect already isn't she maybe what you really want is for fanny to have a sort of a a final act a bit of oomph a bit, because also the other thing she is as well. Edmund. I'm sure she dies in childbirth. But <laughs> she would have died in childbirth because she was so feeble. And that's a very neat way, isn't it, of um, her exempting herself from the parenting challenge. You never need to think about sort of Fanny Price as a as a mother, as someone because because that would have to toughen her up, wouldn't it? She'd have to know. She'd have to learn to kind of impart some wisdom. Um, no, but, she wouldn't. She might be all right because she might just allow the child to be. That's and learn from the child. I'd like to write that, you know. Not, I mean, that I have no business doing Oh, you're going to write the Dennis sequel to... Imagine writing a sequel where she has a baby and she sort of gets her shit together and she finds a way to roar. Oh, yeah, because you do roar when you've had a baby because, you know, you become a she-wolf and you're protecting this tiny little thing. She might roar at Lady Bertram, mightn't she? I think she would, you know. I'm, I'm optimistic, do you think she'd breastfeed until the kid was six years old and, uh, <laughs> and uh, wouldn't let she'd the baby be, be a, alone at night? On a mum's net forum, complaining about plastic toys and party bags. <laughs> I, I think we ought to have all... Um, Wooden toys. My uh, Ermintrude is going plastic-free. <laughs> yeah. Ermintrude just likes playing with leaves in the garden. <laughs> Ermintrude died when she was four because she ate a poisonous mushroom. Yeah, she probably did. What? books what fiction books or novels or old books do you wish your own parents had read and do you have any favorite parents in novels and parents that you think are good bad examples sorry (laughs) when you mentioned parents um i immediately thought of pride and prejudice and mr and mrs bennett and uh what we have there are two parents who don't get on don't have any common ground and uh, he gets by with sarcasm and she gets by by being a hypochondriac 
And I just wonder how that is replicated and has been throughout time where parents sort of stay together but haven't really got anything in common at all. But they each love their children in their own way. Mrs Bennett wants them to be financially secure. Mr Bennett wants them to be intellectually fulfilled. Um, and he thinks that, um, you know, he's, he's sort of framed as the goody in some way because he doesn't want um, his children to marry people they don't respect. But he's married someone that he doesn't respect. Well, that's why he doesn't want the same fate for his children, isn't it? So I suppose those are the, that, 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 those are the first parents that come to mind. It's, it's an interesting idea, the thought of parents in literature, because they're usually found to be lacking in some way, mm. aren't they? <laughs> it would be a bit boring, wouldn't it, if they, if they weren't? Well, I suppose Maybe. when you know, our parents don't give us something. We've got something incomplete within us that we spend the rest of our life searching for. That's true. I suppose if you think that all, every novel, you've really got to have someone who desires someone or something, and it's that the fulfilment of that desire, and so you've got to have a need created. Yeah, even if the desire is to find out who they actually are. Mm. Yeah, so often we're not given the tools to have confidence in, in what we experience and what we feel because we haven't had those feelings validated or mirrored. And so we're looking for that in the outside world, you know, maybe through work, maybe through love. And, of course, a lot of novels are about, you know, trying to find oneself. I think, I've not read this book yet, Carrie Hudson's Lowborn is something I'm really excited to read because that's, I think, so much about the way, the circumstances in which you grow up can define you and how you can make sure they don't define you. Kerry Hudson's former books, uh, Tony Hogan Bought Me an Ice Cream Float Before He Stole My Ma and Thirst, what blew me away about both of those is that they took me to worlds of which I knew nothing but which were inhabited by humans who, you know, had the same thoughts and feelings that I have. But I have never known anyone describe the the experience of being an immigrant and in um, Tony Hogan what it's like to be poor and shifting from place to place and um, yeah what it's like to be born into poverty to come from poverty and to stay poor because obviously coming from that background less people are writers so you don't hear about it so much in in novels and she just opened my eyes to things that I didn't know about coming from my comfy middle-class background. And I think she's got such a great voice and she can tell a story and she's so readable. I like a book I don't have to work too hard with. I like to be able to be swept along, pulled along by, by narrative and by characterization and by, by getting to know some, something that I didn't know about but I know a bit about. If it's completely strange, then I'm, it's, it's too difficult. If I know a little bit about it, I've got one foot on a ladder and I can, I can, I can climb up the rest with their help. Talking about learning stuff that I don't know anything about through books, uh, Bernadine Evaristo is someone else who you know, opened my eyes about what it was like. I mean, I've read Mr Loverman. That blew me away because I've no idea what it's like to be a gay man 
from Antigua who emigrates to Britain and he's coming from a place where people get killed for being gay um, or ostracised and so it's terrifying for him to come out so he has to live a lie and it's such a moving book and it and it's heartrending and it's also funny so to have wit and also move you is is such a clever thing to do and again telling me about a world i know, know nothing about i have no patience for men say who say oh i don't read books by women so they only want to know about their world and they don't want to find out about something else but when I'm reading, I, I want to find out about other people's lives, other people's viewpoints, other people's experiences. And Kerry and Bernadine Evaristo, they are, they are amazing for, for that, for opening my eyes. Damien Barr, You'll Be Safe Here. This is going to be published in March. I'm glad you picked that up, because when you were talking about Kerry Hudson, I was thinking about his memoir, Maggie and Me. I get this a world that I knew so so little about, but is described so vividly and evocatively. And even though you don't know those people, you do know him because yeah. the writing is so strong. He has in this book he has immersed himself into the the history of South Africa from the Boer War to the present day. And uh it tells a tale really of transgenerational trauma. And how the trauma rears its head again through every generation. So what happens decades ago, or even, you know, centuries ago, uh, still has an impact on who we are today. And uh, it's such a moving book, and it makes you cry. It it makes you bigger rather than smaller. Again, because of all the experiences he's researched and magically turned into a gripping novel. Fabulous book. And I guess that brings us back to to your book, doesn't it? And the Bennets and the things that we hold on to and recycle and recycle again. And I suppose it happens within families, a small scale. I mean, I do do say in my book that as parents, we are but a link in a chain. And the chain goes back generations and will go forward generations. And every link you know, certainly affects those next to it and, and maybe, you know, affect links to come. So it is our duty to shape our own link as, as best as we can because it's not only affecting the generation we're bringing up, but it will affect their children and their children. So I, I do like this idea of transgenerational legacies. And, of course, being a psychotherapist and, and hearing a lot of family stories and stuff, I've, I've embodied that so much in my work too. Um, I think we have to stop here and let the oh, cat in. Probably <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, <coughs> Hello. But very indignant being shut out. Yeah. Sorry about that. Look, there's more books over there. Different sorts of books. Let, all right, well, first let's talk about... Let's talk oh, about let's lethal, talk. lethal White. Yes, because this is Robert Galbraith. Now, if I'm... My, Robert Galbraith is who I think they are. Yes, they are. Um, it's not a secret. <laughs> it's no. not a spoiler. But this is just... First of all, this is an absolute doorstop. This is vast. Have you and seen it's been to the swimming you... pool a few times? Ah, I was going to say, you read it in the bath? No, I took it on holiday. And can I, I cannot recommend a better book for by the pool than Lethal White, 
a strike novel, number one bestseller, gold lettering, Robert Galbraith. It's wonderful because, unlike a lot of detective novels, you actually really care about all the three-dimensional characters. They're not two-dimensional characters that are just for the plot. She can really fill in a person. There's the detective's assistant, Robin, and you're shouting at her to dump her husband. And, you know, it's, so it's got all that sort of personal stuff about a novel, plus a really narrative-driven plot for who done it. Fabulous! Absolutely, so got, and this... and it's been made into TV. Ah, um, all, like all the other strike novels. So it looks now. like this really stays in your head and consumes you. Do you well, find? I can't remember who did it now, but it, but it's just so like the be- I love a again? detective novel. I mean, I even like John Grisham's. I I love reading. I'll read anything. But that, if there was another Robert Graubraith book out. I would say we have to cut this short and I'd be on my bike to the nearest bookshop to get it. I couldn't well, wait for Amazon to that deliver. That's a hell of a recommendation. Yeah, I just, I just, it's just entertainment. Have you always read for just pure, the pleasure of it? I've like read that. to pass the time because there is a lot of time and it needs filling. And when I was a child, it needed filling like nothing else. And it needed filling with another world that I wasn't in. And I'd never let go of that wanting to know about other worlds. Like that pile over there, um, the Chinese English Dictionary for Lovers, that's what it's like to immigrate into this country if you're from China. So what a lot we can learn about ourselves from looking at us from an, an outside point of view. I loved that book. It was great. That's quite. That's really arresting. Because normally on the back, I'm like, that's not to do with the book. I don't really. Oh, can you read what it says on the back? Well, this is. It just really struck me. Now I'm going to do this incorrectly as well. 23 year old um, Zhuang, or Z as she calls herself, Westerns cannot pronounce her name, arrives oh. in London to spend a year learning English. I don't think I did pronounce her name. No, I can't pronounce it. Struggling to find her way in the city. And through the puzzles of tense, verb and adverb, she falls for an older Englishman and begins to realise that the landscape of love is an even trickier terrain. I've just realised that you wanted me to read the back so you could finish your pie. She's got me. She's but got that's me. Well observed. Genius that. move. Um, it's such a funny book because we realise not only how ridiculous we are, but how ridiculous our language is. And it's funny because we know the language and she invites us to laugh at her and how she gets it wrong. It's fabulous. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We'll be back to Philippa soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book that's worth its weight in golden rubies, or at the very least should be read on a Kardashian-style platinum diamond Kindle. This week it's Darling by Rachel Edwards. Darling has fallen in love, but she's struggling to contend with her new stepdaughter Lola, a troubled teen who's furious about the new addition to her family. Edwards writes her character so skillfully and creates so much depth and nuance that it's impossible to ignore their humanity, even when Lola's behaviour is entirely reprehensible. The twist at the end totally winded me. I'm keeping this a spoiler-free zone, but this is essential reading for fans of smart thrillers. That's Darling by Rachel Edwards, published by Fourth Estate, out now. Now back to Philippa. What do you think is the funniest book you've ever read? Well, it depends how old I am when I'm reading it. When I was a young girl, I thought Tom Sharp was hilarious. And I recently picked one up and I just thought, oh God, how trite. So, you know, it just depends where you are. I love annoying everybody on the tube by laughing out loud at a book. This is Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee. I think... Books that are funny, the best books that are funny are the books that are sad as well as funny. You know, they've got all the emotions there and not just trying to be funny. I mean, if you just read a book now that's trying to be funny, like I read um, Eric Morecambe's, um, I can't remember what it was called. Eric Morecambe wrote a book about a travelling salesman. Mr Lonely. Yeah, Mr Lonely. Um, Mr Lonely implies tragedy, but it bloody wasn't. It was just like, oh, I couldn't get through it. Trying to be funny is never funny, but life is funny. And so if you write about life well, like Min Jin Lee does, it's funny. Really want to read that because it looks great. Um, and the description and your description made me think of um, Everything's Illuminated, which there was a film that I did not like so much. Who is that by? Is that, I want to say, Jonathan Safran Foer. Was that, that wasn't the one about 9-11, because uh, I've read all of uh, Saffron Foy's work, I have to and I can't, and I haven't read it for what years. I remember but was this is great. We're talking it, about books we can't quite <laughs> remember. Oh yeah, it was bloody tragic. I remember it. It was lovely. It was a really great book. I remember it now. It's really oh god, the bit when they're all burnt in the church. Christ. But of course, his uh, relationship with Alex is so amusing. It's sort of like fun goes on even though these terrible things happen. I've forgotten because you've got that liveliness of the letters and the real, you know, the wit mm. of them and the sort of absurdity of them and it's a real kind of take no prisoners, everything mm. and everybody is up for a send up but then that really the tragic story that kind of that yeah. intercuts it. 
But now it's amazing how a book can just consume you and stay with you and be all you think about when you're reading it. And then, yeah. you know, to my eternal shame, what would I forget? Oh, yeah. I, I know you had to look that one up. Do you tend to remember? Well, that was out in 2002, which is now 2019. I think 17 years ago since I read the book, I'm allowed to forget bits of it. But I'm sure things I learnt stayed with me in the process of how I learnt them and the process of the book, even if the content faded the generalised truths. Maybe I learned about transgenerational trauma in that book. I don't know how I picked that up or how I learned about it. Of course, I learned about it in my therapy training, but how it was illustrated, you know. Yeah, of course. I mean, who knows? Um, I'm ready for more coffee. Does anybody else want a sort of drink? He wants the coffee sounds, doesn't he? Fun, isn't it? Let's have coffee sounds. What was um, I going to say? I don't know, because I interrupted Oh, you. that was in the way that um, you were saying about the things the things we sense and the ways that we communicate that aren't in the mind, but they're felt and they're real and they're intuited. Yeah. I think there's something about that with books, that they, even if we can't remember exactly what happened or why, we can always remember the sense of them and how they made us feel. Exactly. We have an emotional memory uh, that remembers the process of reading it and, and, and sort of what we learnt on a bodily level in the book, even if we forget the content or the plot or who did it. Or... And I do wonder whether every single book is different depending on when we read it and when we come to it. Well, a book, what is it? It's the words of an author written down. So in a way, a book is a relationship with a person telling you a story. And you know in your relationships with people, they affect you. We affect each other. And in the same way, once we've been affected by a book, I think we retain some of that effect. Definitely. You should do this. You should be a professional. So nailed. nailed. Do you ever listen to books on tape or books on phone, I guess, is what we have now? I love it. Um, I've listened to... I can only read some people on tape. Yeah, for instance, I can't read Will. I can't read Will Self. I have to keep stopping to look up words that I don't know the meaning of. Oh, you can't read him in a in a book. In a book, you have to listen but to him. Really enjoyed because he reads it himself too, and he's got a very sardonic tone. I really enjoyed Umbrella about a lunatic asylum. And uh, do you like the coffee sounds? Good. Yeah, that was that was great. Although I feel bad bigging up his book because he, he, he and my friend are going through a terrible divorce. Oh, God, I'm sorry. And I'm so on Deborah's side, obviously. Just want to make that clear. For the record. <laughs> we can, we no. can take out the bit about his book, if you like. If you don't no, no, to. keep the whole I thing. And keep the whole thing me bigging up Deborah. Deborah Orr, who is writing a book called Motherwell, uh, about her mother, I think, who came from Motherwell. I'm, I'm, that is a brilliant name, and I'm a huge fan of her journalism. Wait, has she, has she written other books? No, this, this is her first book. Oh, wow, when's it out? Do you know? I don't think she's finished it yet. Give her a chance. No pressure, Deborah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure whether I've got the title right. Uh, I think it was a work in, title in progress. Or I might have just misunderstood what she was talking about, but I, th- I think it is called Motherwell. Well, I'll give it whenever, when Deborah's book is out, I will read it. I'll be giving it a big plug. Right. She wants to come on the podcast. We'd be delighted. Um, am I right in thinking of all your books being non-fiction? Yeah. No, that's not true. Couch fiction is a 
fabricated case study. So it is a graphic novel. What was the process of making that like? I love graphic novels. And at the time I got the idea for Couch Fiction, I was reading Harvey Pika, American Splendour, which was a comic he used to put out from time to time, and it was all amalgamated into one big book. And it's a graphic memoir, not a graphic novel. And for each little story within the memoir, he got a different artist to draw it. And then that just gave me the idea I could get an artist to draw, because I can't be, I can draw, but I'm slow, and I just could not be bothered. I, I find drawing, I mean, I enjoy observational drawing, but to do all that drawing, it's, it's not the sort of drawer I am, I'm a slow drawer. But um, my uh, cleaner at the time, Junko Grat, she was a quick drawer, and she'd draw me little notes and stuff, and her drawing was gorgeous and adult, and she, I think she'd learnt graphic design in um, Japan, and so she did the drawing for me, and I did the story and the footnotes. So are you quite a visual thinker? Can you kind of see things as you write no, them? No, I'm not very visual at all. But I went to art school and, um, you know, I can draw and I can make art, but I'm not a very visual person. I am a more of a word person. Did you think when you went to art school that you would be an artist? Or I was, was living you want in to be... I was doing quite yeah. well in that I was living in the moment and I just wanted to go to art school for the sake of art school and being there rather than thinking about how it might serve me in the future and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. And I think if you go with what works in the present, it quite often pans out quite well for the future. So sometimes delayed gratification is good and sometimes it isn't. Um, I wanted to ask you about another... I don't know. Uh, you don't know. You don't know. I think I've heard of Marilyn it. Robinson. I think the Did first one is Leela. Oh yeah, there's Leela, oh. and then you get Gilead, and then there's a couple more. So you have got a little treat um, ahead of you because she can write about the fate of women pretty damn well, and the fate of men actually, but how we're restricted by our roles and how we can make the best of it in the roles or break out of them. She wrote another book called Housekeeping. She's one of those novelists a bit like and novelists a bit like Ann Tyler who just understands human beings so well and so I love Ann Tyler. I love Ann Tyler. A, a, a spool of blue thread while we're talking about transgenerational mm. trauma. Fabulous. Uh, that was her... Was that not her latest? I think it might was have Was it... Been. Did she... I think she was nominated for the, the Women's Prize. Did she... Is it... God, this is terrible. Is it the Women's Prize? The Women's Prize. Oh, the Costa. You just get... Yeah, I don't know what... I think it's, it's been... Was it the Costa before or after the Baileys? Or maybe one of you things? I have no idea. They always have that party on the same night as the uh, Royal Academy Summer Show, so I'm very split. Oh. Art and literature, what you a, know. What a problem to have. <laughs> Too many parties. Never know which one to go to. Ma if you like Anne Tyler, you'll love Marilyn Robinson. Uh, both these women understand what it is to be human, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a small dog, what it is to be a train. 
they understand it in such a way as they cannot help but expand your vision of the world and that's what we want from a book as well as to be entertained and they are both thoroughly entertaining. What I really love about Anne Tyler is that she seems so... Um, Philip would like me to point out that Gilead won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and the Orange Prize for... At home won the Orange Prize. Yeah. Her, Orange, yeah the Orange her. Prize winning author at home. Yeah. But it's about that, the, the tiny, tiny sadnesses, and it's not kind of bouncing from sort of tragedy to yeah, disaster. Yeah, it's not, it's, I mean, there is big drama, and there's tiny, tiny drama too, and it's so interesting how the tiny, tiny little dramas add up into something that isn't sustainable, or something that works, and, oh, it's just, I never want those books to end, even if they're describing a, a world that is constricted, the way she sees it, both Tyler and Ma uh, Robinson, I'm talking about, the way they see it, I, I just wouldn't mind if I never put the book down. That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Like, I suppose when you think how many books there are in, in Victorian literature that were written as, um, as soaps, and I'm a, an Armistead Dead Mopan super fan. Oh, me too. Those were... Just continuing stories. Tales of the City, further tales of the city, great characters that we felt there were our friends and we wanted to know more of them and we wanted to hang out with them, even if they were annoying. Of all of them that you can remember, who do you think would be your your dream client and your nightmare client? As a psychotherapist, who do you think would really benefit from your advice and who just wouldn't listen? In the Tales of the City books. Tales or in any. Um, well, of course, what was the woman called? Mary, Mary Lou or something. Marianne. Mary, Marianne. I'd love Marianne. Love her. I loved her anyway. But I would love her as a client. Because she wouldn't change. I mean, everybody tried to change her. Michael tried to make her more human and less hard and he couldn't. It's such a challenge. I'd love to have a go at that. And... Uh, I don't actually think about who I'd like as a client because I, I never think that, actually, oh, I'd really like them as a client or I'd like them as a client. I never think like that. I think when somebody comes to see you for psychotherapy, you want to uncover what the culture has put on them and find the essential them. And when you're looking at someone from an external way, you're looking at how they're enculturated so you're, you're not actually seeing them you're seeing the vision they present to the world and I am always absolutely thrilled um, when we peel back those layers together and themselves are revealed to themselves uh, you know when they find out what, who the baby was before the baby was trained to be a certain way before you adapted to the culture you find yourself in who is that essential person you know how do they smell the world how do they taste how do they experience and to get right back to that so that they can find out what it is they feel and from that work out what it is they want and then go go for it somebody comes to you for therapy and and they gradually realise everything it is they've ever been told covertly and un, un, and uh, inconvertly. What's the word? That's not the right word. Um, explicitly? Covert and, and not covert. Um. You take everything out and then they only put about what they want. So I 
would never say, oh, I'd love to have them as a client. I never think that. I mean, I suppose Donald Trump would be the ideal client. What a challenge. Find the find the find the baby before they were corrupted in him and re- rebuild from the base up. We might get a human being. You never know. I mean, if, if you can do it, I don't think I can. I th- don't think there's I don't think there's enough time. People who see other people just as instruments for them, or or, or just as a, a people to be manipulated rather than people to be equal to and, and related to. That is the problem we have. That we started to value capitalist values of what you have rather than who you are and it's almost as though these people believe that the richer you are the more important you are rather than everybody's just a soul I think that's where we've all got lost because we're just so callous now towards whole races of people who aren't us it's like we can't enter into other people's worlds. Like we were talking earlier about the value of books mm. for seeing things from different perspectives. I think if when we've lost the ability to do that, when we've lost the ability to see what it's like to be poor or what it's like to be a refugee, we're dead. Well, I think that's the best and worst thing about being a reader. I think that to be a decent writer you must be empathetic you must be willing to understand people as you understand yourself and to write about them and so we are every time we read a a book that we love we're immersing ourselves in the world of an empathizer which is I think a brilliant thing and I think we should all do it and that's why it's so That's why why it's so valuable, and that's why I always feel a bit when somebody tells me they never read. Mm. I I, I, I get, I I think, a red flag, isn't it? It's sort of well, I don't know. They they might be empathetic in other ways, but I really think it does exercise our empathy to read. I think that's a really good point you make there. But I do think it means it's hard to, it's very hard to empathise with people who don't have empathy. I don't know why you wouldn't be interested in people's lives and why you wouldn't be moved by them. Oh, well, then that's something you can learn about. <laughs> Not everybody does have empathy, and what they require from us is just a little bit more adaptation so that we can meet. And it's not... I mean, um, you know, quite a lot of autistic people don't have empathy, but it doesn't mean to say they're in any way bad or immoral. It just means they see the world differently. And I love finding out about that. I mean, Mark Haddon... Uh, entered into the world of an uh, autistic person when he wrote The Curious Incident of the Dog at Night Time. And I feel like you can't help but love the hero of that book. Mm. I I bought this. I only just bought it, actually. I bought it. How do you switch the damn thing on? To go on holiday, because I finished all my books when I was on holiday, so I needed a Kindle. Your battery is low. Okay. Okay, home. See what I've got on here. Oh, look. How to Own the Room. Ah. How to Own the Room by Viv, Gro- Viv Grosskop. Um, fabulous. She taught me about happy high status. Happy high status is when you can just be, like, kind of normal when you're, re- when you're addressing a room full of people. Who knew? That's fabulous. Um, now, where do I get to... Ah, I'm just trying to find... I've got recommended for you. How can I get back to the index so I can see what I've read so far Goodreads on no no back 
Like, when did you last use your Kindle? When I was on holiday in October. Your library. Click. That's what I want. Oh, here we go. Um, oh, look at me. The Anthropology of Childhood. I love anthropology. I've got a book there. Um, Past and Present in Hunter-Gatherer Studies. Yeah. Um, and love... by Carmel Schreier. You see, I was born in the wrong time. I wanted to be born in a hunter-gatherer society and I wanted to be born before farming was invented because it, when farming was invented, then we had property. And I think all things like property and, and um, owning stuff has really set us back on being decent human beings. Um, Am I right in thinking that in terms of sort of things were quite egalitarian pre-farming because women were as important as men and it was farming yes. that changed yeah. the way labour was valued. Yes. You're absolutely right. I've read a lot of books about it. Just trying to see what else I've got on here. Oh, grid. One of three. How do I get? The Circle by Dave Eggers. Again, everybody raved about that. I didn't like it. Um, I thought it was two-dimensional. Because it's, it's Dave Eggers. I don't think he listens. I think we can take a risk. Um, what was it that didn't appeal? Did you finish it? or did Characterisation. You... It was like, all the people seemed like robots. I mean, I know that was part of it with the circle. They all got indoctrinated in it. But, you know, even our our heroine seemed a bit of a robot. And and it's just two-dimensional characterisation. I really have to believe <laughs> oh, in people. I need to give a woman a personality. We'll put her in a kayak. Yeah, that's exactly it. We'll put her in a kayak, like like she wants to be in a fucking kayak. Uh, the Dry, that was good by... Now, the the 96% that I've read of The Dry goes over the, the end of her surname, so I can't find it. Hang on. Oh, I hate Kindle. Forget it. <laughs> anyway, The Dry, written by someone and the stickers in front of their name. I enjoyed that. That was a cracking novel set in... Australia, I think. Because that's the other thing. Jane Harper. Jane Harper. Harper. Jane Harper. Sorry, Jane. Anyway, your novel The Dry was great. But there's quite a lot of podcasters us trying to work out your name, so there's lots of airtime for you. Yeah, well, it's terrible that we didn't know your name. I'm sorry. But there's there's just a lot to read. At least we could pronounce it. I know, isn't that fun? Do you think we've got too much choice? Do you think we were better off when the travelling library in a van came to our house and we, and, and it only had A to G because the rest of the library was back at the town hall. <laughs> it was therefore that I read Eric Ambler uh, and then I got to E.M. Delafield. It was like my, f- my favourite novelist when I was a child. I think could have been E.M. Delafield who wrote The Diary of a Provincial oh, she's Lady. She's another observer, isn't she? Really? And, funny. and funny. Very funny. Lady Box called. She pointed out that I shouldn't have oak and mahogany in the same room. Well, thank you. <laughs> she also told me that my bulbs were, you know, and this very critical woman comes in and makes her feel terrible. And we've all had that, and it's just great. And it's interesting how that's sort of gone on, I guess, from sort of time immemorial, all of that, you know, mad sort of status-driven behaviour. Yeah, and of course I'm caught up in it. You know, I, I, I say, oh, 
wouldn't it be great if we were hunter-gatherers and didn't have property and stuff? But look at me. I love my pink leather armchairs. They are fabulous. Aren't they? I know it's the cat has ruined them. Feel, well. feel that, feel that. That's, that what, that's what the cat's done to them. You could, um... They're only, they're only like four some... months old. <laughs> I know, they're completely ripped <laughs> a shred. Because it's somewhere on Etsy there is a feline distressing boutique that's like, do you want to own a cat that you were away a lot while we can? Well, actually, we're putting him to to work on all the, the sofas in Hoxton coffee bars to distress them. You know, it's how we, it's how we survive. We send the cat out to work. <laughs> Thank you so much, Philippa, who is an even better writer than pie maker, and she is brilliant at pies. The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did is out on the 7th of March, published by Penguin Life. And it's wise, honest, clever, funny and true. Follow Philippa at Philippa underscore Perry on Twitter. And if you're lucky, you might spot Kevin the Cat. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me between the covers. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time and I'll leave you with the words of Far in The Pursuit of Love. I've only ever read one book in my life, and that is White Fang. It's so frightfully good I've never bothered to read another. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.